Oh, it is, uh, it's good to be here, good to uh, get a chance to reconnect with uh, some people I haven't gotten to see for a while, and just to be a part of what God is doing uh, up here in the Twin Cities. It is really uh, exciting to uh, bring you uh, greetings from down in Ames. Um, so one of the things uh, I, I was thinking about looking at this passage today is just how long it seems to take sometimes for God to change us, right? Like there's stuff we know should be different, uh, but it just seems like it's taking a long time for God to bring about transformation. So let me, let me give an example. So this is something I've, I've noticed in myself. So when I am in conflict or when someone criticizes me, there's a whole variety of strategies that I uh, typically use to try to like basically justify myself, right? It's pride, right, at the, at the root of this. Uh, so one of the strategies I use, I call best available motive. So like the idea is like, I do something and my wife's like, why did you do that? Um, now I did it, so I can't change the fact that I did it, but she doesn't know why I did it. So I've got to come up with a motive. Now, sometimes when asked, I can come up with a better motive than the one I actually had, right? So that's why I call it best available motive. It's not really my actual motive, but it's the best one available to fit what I just did. Sometimes I don't even know why I did what I just did, so I'm just creating a motive from scratch, right? I've got that too, right? So best available motive. It has an ugly counterpart uh, called worst available motive. Uh, this is where I ascribe to the other person the worst possible motive they could have for whatever it is they just did. Um, and since those are kind of a mouthful, I've got acronyms BAM and WHAM, if you want to try to like, uh, see when you're doing this at home. Um, Third thing I do, I call story cropping. You know how like you can Photoshop and you can like take a picture and you crop out the parts you don't want and it kind of makes the picture tell a different story than the whole picture? I do that with stories, right? So I can tell you a story where I just, everything's true, but I just strategically leave out the parts that would make me look worse, right? And so you've heard my side of the story if I'm in conflict with someone and you are completely persuaded that I am, of course, right, and I've achieved this because I've conveniently left out all the parts that might make the other person's side plausible, right? Uh, and then the last one I call banking. And this is where, like, okay, I have to admit I did something wrong or I messed up, but think how many good things I've done. Like, so in other words, if I, if I mess up something around the house, I can start working through this catalog of all the ways I serve my wife and the basic idea is all those good things I've done are in the bank. And as long as I've got a positive balance, no one's allowed to be upset at me, right? Well, sure, I messed up here, but you have no right to be upset given all the other stuff I did, right? So, so I came up with this list and realized I do all of these things uh, when I was getting ready uh, to preach a sermon at Cornerstone five years ago on the story of Jacob and Laban. And that's going to be the end of what we're uh, looking at in today's message, because in Jacob and Laban, you see the two of them just using all of these techniques to both of them like justify themselves in their conflict with each other. Now, here's the thing. Five years ago, I preached a sermon on this, like all of those things, and five years later, I still find myself doing those things. Right? Five years later, it's not like I've, I've like just moved past it. Oh, yes, five years ago I used to be like that. No, these are still things. I, those thought patterns I still see coming up in my own mind, and it takes a long time to change. And sometimes it can just be frustratingly slow 
the pace at which we're changing. And I don't know, maybe you, know, you resonate a lot with my examples. It could be different things for you. It could be addictions to alcohol or pornography or something like that. Maybe it's bitterness or resentment or selfishness, right? There's these things inside of us we know should be different, but it seems like it's just taking a long time, right, for God to change us. Well, we're going to be looking at chapters 23 to 31 in Genesis uh, and we're going to see a lot of sin and a lot of brokenness going on in those chapters. But what we're also going to see, uh, and I hope this will help us to have more patience and more hope, is we're going to see God's patient pursuit of his plan in the midst of all of this brokenness that's going on. Uh, and I should warn you, uh, today's sermon is in fact sponsored by the letter P, uh, as well as the number uh, 11. So God's patient pursuit of his plan um, Let's, right? I'm just getting started here. So um, sometimes with a big chunk of scripture, it's helpful to take an even bigger chunk of scripture to put it in perspective. So I'm actually going to review and go back all the way to Genesis 1 and 2, right? So in Genesis 1 and 2, God has a plan, right? And his plan is first to create a place. It's called the Garden of Eden, right? And in that place, he puts Adam and Eve, and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply so that they can have posterity, right? They're going to have descendants, lots of children, right? He also makes it a place where all of their needs are met. There's all of this amazing food, right? It's a place of abundance and prosperity, right? Um, And God has a purpose for them, right? They're supposed to care for his creation, and as they are fruitful and multiply, they're going to expand out And they're going to teach their children to walk in their ways of of God just as they do. And the earth is supposed to be filled with people who reflect God's image and worship and give him glory, right? The whole earth is ultimately supposed to be filled with God-glorifying image bearers who, like, live according to God's ways. That's the plan of God in Genesis 1 and 2. But then in chapter 3, human beings rebel, Right? We decide instead of being a part of God's plan, we want to reject, we want to take the place uh, of God for ourselves, uh, to listen to Satan instead, and that brings brokenness to all of these things. Right? Adam and Lee, all of those uh, plans of God are affected by the sin. Right? Adam and Eve are kicked out of their place. Right? They're expelled from the Garden of Eden. Uh, they're still able to have children, but now there's a lot more pain in childbirth. We see all kinds of brokenness immediately within their family among, uh, among their children. Suddenly, prosperity is a lot harder to come by when they farm, like there's weeds and thorns, right? Everything is worse. And, and maybe worst of all, human beings are now just frequently, maybe even normally, acting at cross-purposes with God, right? God has his purposes, we have our purposes, and now they're in conflict, Right? And that's the state of humanity uh, from Genesis 3 forward. And the whole rest of the Bible, right, from Genesis 3 uh, to Revelation 21 and 22, right, is the story of how God is going to make sure all of his original purposes from Genesis 1 and 2 are accomplished. Now, it's, it's a long story, but one of the key moments of how God is going to make sure all of those parts of his plan come to uh, fruition is by this promise that he makes to Abraham. Right? And, and, and Drew talked about this uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, he picks this just regular guy, Abraham, and he makes these amazing promises to him, and he promises Abraham four things, right? A place. Now, this time it's not the Garden of Eden, right? It's going to be the promised land. He says you're going to have countless descendants, right? You're going to have a posterity. He says I'm going to make you rich, you're going to have prosperity, and I have a purpose for you. 
Because through your family, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, right? That's, that's what I'm going to do. So notice, God is now in this one family, starting again on all those same uh, purposes he had in chapters uh, 1 and 2 of Genesis. So what I want to do today is we look at chapters 23 to 31 is kind of check in and ask ourselves, how are these promises of God coming along, right, uh, at this part of the story? So let's uh, dive in and uh, uh, talk first about the promise of a place, right? There's going to be a particular land, and God even shows them, here's the boundaries, here's the border of what's going to be the land you're going to get. How's that, that promise coming along so far? Well, actually, Abraham is told early on, it's going to be a long time before this part comes to pass, right? Uh, so to review a little bit, back in chapter 15, verses 13 to 16, God says to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Right? So like Abraham is told, hey, I've got a promise for you and your descendants, but just so you know, it's going to be 400 years before you get the land. And the reason is, I'm extremely patient with the sinful Amorite people. They are sinful, but I'm going to give them 400 more years of opportunity to repent before I finally bring judgment upon them and you get to have their land. Right? That's a long time for his family to wait. Now, in chapter 23, something interesting happens. Right? So uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, dies, and Abraham needs to find a place to bury her. Uh, and so chapter 23 tells about Abraham uh, buying a piece of land uh, so that he can have a place uh, to bury Sarah. And we've got nine chapters, and most of you are not that interested in the details of, of ancient real estate transactions. But the, the thing that's really interesting about this is when the dust clears, Abraham now owns one tiny piece of the promised land. That makes sense? Like, this is like the first fruit. Eventually, he's going to own the whole thing, right? His descendants are. But God gives him this tiny bit of land, just enough to bury his family. And that's what he's kind of got as a down payment. And it's going to be 400 years before they get the rest of it, right? So that's, that's a little bit about how things are going in terms of place. What about posterity? Well, one of the things we actually find out is Abraham actually had uh, more wives than you think and more kids than you think. Um, but only one of them, Isaac, is the child of the promise, right? So the, the particular promises uh, that God has made for, to fulfill uh, for Abraham are all going to come through Isaac. And, and so as far as the promise is concerned, Abraham has one son, uh, countless descendants and one son. One is very easy to count. In fact, it's the easiest number to count to. Um, so if this promise is going to like, be fulfilled... More needs to happen. So step one is Isaac needs to get married, right? And that's chapter 24. And God works in this like amazing providential way, guiding Abraham's servant back to where uh, Abraham's family is from. Uh, they uh, find uh, Rebecca. Uh, God makes it clear that she's the one. She agrees. Her uncle agrees. And so she comes back. She marries Isaac. 
Okay, step one. Step two, Isaac needs to have kids now, right? And so after a period, uh, God um, answers their prayer. He provides them with children. And in fact, she has twins, right? So now this is starting like uh, going from one to two. Two is still very easy to count to, right? But it's double one, right? So it seems like we're making progress. But notice, here's what God says uh, to Rebecca. Uh, Chapter 25, verse 23, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger, right? So this is our clue that even though there are two kids, once once again, God is only going to pick one of them to be the child of the promise. So as far as the promise is concerned, Abraham gets one son and one grandson. So the promise of like countless descendants is going as slowly as it possibly could, right, without God breaking the promise. Okay, what about the third, uh, prosperity? This is actually the easy one. Abraham's rich. Uh, He gets rich right away. He doesn't actually have to wait on this one, so I'm not going to talk about it too much. Uh, But number four, what about purpose, right? All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. Well, how's this happening and how's it supposed to work? Another clue to review something uh, from a little earlier in Genesis. Back in chapter 18, verse 19, here's what God said about Abraham. God said about Abraham, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. In other words, you catch this? Like God's plan for Abraham is that he will teach his children to act rightly and justly, to walk in the ways of the Lord. And as he creates a family of people who reflect the image of God and walk in the ways of the Lord, the nations are going to be blessed through them, right? So that's like part of Abraham's job is to make sure his kids and his grandkids after him are walking in God's ways. So that's going to be the main thing we're going to be talking about. Like, how's that going? Right? Because we're going to be looking at Isaac and Jacob, and we're going to get uh, a sense of some of the challenges. So I'm going to just read through, uh, really more summarize, um, chapter by chapter, the different struggles that Abraham's family has where they're really not doing a very good job of walking in the ways of the Lord. And as I go through, just ask yourself, which of these resonate with you, where you'd say, actually, their sin, that's my sin, right? I I struggle with the same things they do, right? So in chapter 25, uh, the first thing we see is Isaac controlled by the desires of his flesh, right? So uh, Abraham's son, Isaac, uh, here's how we know this is true. In chapter 25, verses 27 and 28, it says this. Uh, It says, when the boys grew up, right, Jacob and Esau, the twins, uh, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Jacob because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Isaac's love of barbecue destroys his family. Like, seriously, like, he shows favoritism, clear favoritism to Esau over Jacob, and it rips his family apart. Right? Jacob grows up knowing dad loves my brother more than me. It destroys the family. Why does he love Esau so much? He liked the food that Esau would hunt. 
right? His stomach governs how he parents, and it rips his family apart, right? And, and by the way, this is, a, a, this is going to just keep recurring. Jacob is going to do to his sons the same thing that Isaac did to him, right? With showing favoritism, it's going to rip the next generation apart too. And it's based on this, like, just bodily desires that he can control. And your, your issue may not be food. It could be sexual temptation. It could be greed, money, materialism. There's any number of these things. There's just these desires we have. And even though we know we shouldn't act on them, those desires overpower us, right? We see that happening in Isaac. Then just after that, the next uh, few verses, we see godlessness and exploitation, Right? So here's, here's the next scene. Jacob and Esau interacting with each other. So Esau has been out hunting. Esau comes back home, uh, and he's really hungry uh, from being out uh, in the field hunting. So he says, Jacob, you know, make, me some, make me some supper. Uh, and Jacob says, on one condition, sell me your birthright in exchange for supper. He's like, wow, if I don't eat, I'm going to die. Who cares about a birthright? Now, here's, here's the thing. In the ancient world... The eldest son, which, you know, Esau is by like a couple minutes, the oldest son normally inherits a double share of the father's wealth. So like there's two sons, so he's going to get two-thirds, Jacob is going to get one-third, and dad is rich, right? So the amount of money, it's just in monetary terms, he's giving, this is like the most expensive bowl of soup he is ever going to eat, right? As he, as he gives this thing away. But more than that, it's a part of, of being a part of God's promise, a part of God's blessing. And it says he despised his birthright, right? The book of Hebrews, describing the same scene, describes Esau as godless. That's why I call it godlessness. Because basically, the amazing promises of God meant so little to him, he would trade him away for a bowl of soup. And I just wonder how often that kind of godlessness is in us, Right? The promises we have are actually much greater than the promises that Esau has. Like, he was promised you know, two-thirds of his rich dad's money. We've been promised eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. Right? That's our inheritance. That's our birthright. And sometimes we treat it as like an afterthought right, relative to our present circumstances. Now, Jacob doesn't come off really much better because we see him engaging in the sin of exploitation, right? He's exploiting his brother's hunger and short-sightedness to take advantage of him. This is the opposite of loving your neighbor as yourself, right? If you look at what Jacob is doing. And, you know, maybe he's, you know, uh, you know a budding capitalist. Like, hey, he swore an oath. We had a contract. We agreed. He can't blame me because he agreed to it. By the way, this is one of the myths of modern America is as long as everybody consents, it must be okay, right? Consent can still allow for all kinds of injustice and exploitation, and that's what Jacob does to his brother, right? Further tearing the family apart. So then we get to chapter 26, and we see cowardice. And it's familiar cowardice. Remember how Abraham had this tendency whenever he was on a trip to pretend that Sarah was his uh, sister instead of his wife because he's worried that uh, she's so pretty, they're going to kill me to get her. Wouldn't it be better if I could kind of sell her off and then I stay alive and I make some money off of it, right? It's, it's cowardice, right? He's not depending on the Lord to protect him 
And so he's using this deception, right, and putting his wife at risk. Well, Abraham did this twice, and Isaac, instead of learning from both of those instances, you know, God's got this, Isaac does exactly the same thing, right, that Abraham had done. And I wonder how often that's true, right? How many of us make our decisions out of fear? And it's ultimately a fear because we don't believe God's actually going to come through to protect us and take care of us. Well, then we get to chapter 27, and we see the sin of deception. So Rebekah and Jacob conspire together to trick Isaac into giving his blessing to Jacob rather than Esau, right? It's just outright lying. Who are you? I am your son Esau. When in fact it's Jacob saying, I am your son Esau. Like there's no way to like, well, maybe if you kind of read it, it's lying, right? And it's, it's, it's lying with high stakes, right? Now, this is a big deal, right? This is going to be like, in some ways, the, like the straw that breaks the camel's back in terms of the relationship between Jacob and Esau. Esau is ready to kill Jacob after this. And we may think, well, none of my lies are that bad, but I just want us to think about how often we use deception, even if it's just to create a particular image of ourselves that we want other people to share. So let me, let me give an example. Um, a number of years ago, I came across this study that a professor at uh, USC did. He's a psychology professor. Uh, and he was trying to figure out how many lies does the average person tell in a day. So uh, they recorded uh, some people, and they recorded everything they said for 24 hours, like transcribed it all. And then he and his crack team of graduate students went and fact-checked every single sentence these people said, right? See if they were you know, in any way false. And what he came up with is the average person, at least average American, uh, tells about 200 lies a day. 200, you're like, how? That can't be true. How could you get to 200 a day? Let me give some examples. How are you doing? Fine. <laughs> Very few people are actually fine, even though they give that as their answer. Here's a better one. Uh, hey, sorry I'm late. Traffic was bad getting over here. Lie number one, you're not sorry, right? Lie number two... You didn't leave on time, and the lights were not magically green to compensate for you leaving late. Right? You know, you start, like, the, there, was, there was one woman who was a receptionist in a doctor's office. She had, like, 900. Right? You know, she's constantly telling people she's sorry when she's not. Constantly telling them they can't get an appointment. Really, they probably could. Right? All kinds of stuff. Um, so there's something in us deep where we're afraid to just truly and honestly present ourselves to others as we are for fear if they really know the truth about us, they would think less of us, right? Deception. What about 28 and 29 of Genesis? Bitter rivalry. So here's, here's the next uh, kind of installment we get. So Esau is ready to kill Jacob. Uh, so Rebecca, trying to save the life of her favorite son, uh, works it out to send him off to her brother Laban uh, so that Esau won't kill him. So Jacob takes off. He goes to visit Uncle Laban uh, and falls in love with uh, Laban's daughter, Rachel. Uh, and uh, they work out a deal where Jacob will work for Laban for seven years. And in return, he gets to marry Rachel. So he works the seven years. He's ready to marry Rachel. Uh, 
and then has a serious surprise uh, the night, the morning after his wedding, when he wakes up and finds himself married not to Rachel, but to her sister Leah. Uh, Rachel is apparently prettier than Leah. Rachel is the one that he really wanted to marry, uh, and Laban switched brides on him on his wedding night, and apparently he was drunk enough and the veil was thick enough that he doesn't notice until the next morning. Okay, he's furious, right? He worked seven years for Rachel, uh, and he now gets a taste of his own medicine, and Laban's like, oh, you know, I bet, you know, when you hit that, that click, I accept all terms and conditions, you probably didn't read all of those. See, we have, like, here, according to the law, we're not allowed to marry off the younger sister before the older sister, so we had to marry off the older sister first. So it's, it's not my fault, you just didn't read the fine print, right? So he's getting kind of a taste of what exploitation feels like the other way around. Uh, and Laban says, I tell you what, I, I realize you're upset about, here's the deal. Try not to humiliate Leah any more than you already have. Uh, finish out your first week of marriage with her. In another week, uh, a week from today, we'll have another wedding, you can marry Rachel. Catch is, you gotta work for me seven more years. What do you think? Jacob's like, I don't have a lot of choice. I really want to marry Rachel, so I guess this is what I'll do. So this is what they do, right? So now he's got two wives, and he has created the conditions for terrible rivalry, bitter rivalry between his two wives, because both of them are envious of the other, because each of them has something the other wants. Like Leah knows she was the unwanted wife. She knows for her whole life that Rachel is the one Jacob actually wanted. He is only married to her because he was tricked into it, right? He doesn't love her. So she's got, so he's like signed up for a lifetime of being married to a man she doesn't, who she knows doesn't love her. Rachel, on the other hand, can't have children while Leah just has son after son after son after son in a culture where having sons is a big deal. Right? So both of them see what the other has, and they are just torn apart by bitter, bitter rivalry, and it gets to where they're not even thinking straight. Right? So, so Rachel is so upset that her sister's having sons when she can't that she finally says, oh, I know, maybe if I have my servant marry my husband... And she has kids. Because she used to be my servant, it will be kind of like they're my kids, and that'll really show my sister. So they do this, and it works in a sense, right? She has a couple more sons, leading Leah, who's gone through a period where she's not having uh, more children, to say, well, two can play at that game. I'll have my servant marry my husband. And she has a couple more kids, and now they're sharing their husband four ways instead of two. Like, it's completely irrational, but bitter rivalry drives you to do things like this, right? Eventually, Leah has a couple more kids, right? And so there's, there's all these children being born, but it's being born out of bitter rivalry. And then, lastly, chapters 30 and 31, we see self-righteous anger. This is what I was referring to earlier with Jacob and Laban. Eventually, Jacob and Laban enter into a business arrangement, and both of them are trying to get the better of the other. Like, Laban is trying to swindle Jacob. Jacob figures out a way to actually swindle Laban. Uh, and so just the, the tension and anger between the two of them just finally erupts. Jacob thinks Laban's about to kill me or enslave me. He takes off. Laban pursues after him. And they have this, like, bitter 
angry conversation where both of them tell their side of the story, fully convinced that they are the ones in the right. It's just self-righteous anger, right? Is this, is this you? So, so, so think about this, right? To sum up, in the midst of all of this, all of this sin, God could have just like said enough with you guys. But despite all of this brokenness, God is still patiently pursuing his plan. And, and, and we, we see bits of it, right? Number one, we've already talked about this. Even though it's going to be 400 years before they get their place, the promised land, they at least have this tiny first fruit of the promised land in the burial plot of Sarah, right? They've got something as a kind of down payment of the more that is supposed to come. What about uh, posterity? Well, Abraham has one son of the promise, and he has one grandson of the promise, but by this point in our story, he now has 11 great-grandchildren of the promise. Some of you were wondering when the number 11 was going to come in. There it is, right? 11, right? So, so this is the beginning of his descendants actually starting to become numerous. God is at work even in the midst of, of the brokenness. Well, what about prosperity? Jacob basically leaves with next to nothing when he leaves home to go to Laban. And by the time he comes back, God has protected him from Laban, has made him rich, and he is once again a wealthy person. But what about purpose, right? This is the part that seems slow going because what we are seeing is not a generation of people that Abraham has successfully taught to walk in the ways of the Lord. We see just all kinds of sin and brokenness. But in the midst of this, God is still at work trying to change them and help them become what he intends them to be. So back in chapter 26, God personally appears to Isaac. And he reaffirms personally to Isaac the promise that had been made to Abraham. Right? He's trying to draw Isaac into relationship with him. And then he does the same thing with Jacob. In chapter 28... Jacob, as he's on his way to Laban, he has this vision, and he sees heaven opened up and angels ascending and descending, uh, and God once again personally reaffirms the promise to Jacob, right? He's continuing to pursue them even though they are broken and sinful, and God is not done yet. Next week, God is actually going to come in the flesh, and is going to wrestle with Jacob and I think that wrestling match is the beginning of God actually starting to transform Jacob's heart and Jacob's character. And then after that, we're going to see uh, in the next generation, right, the great-great-grandchildren, there's one of them who's named Joseph, who's actually going to act with integrity and justice, and wherever he goes, he's going to bless people. And ultimately, the nations are going to be blessed through him, right? So it seems like the purpose is finally starting to gain traction by the time we get to the end of Genesis, right? This is really uh, exciting, except even by the end of Genesis, it's not fulfilled, right? I mean, they're still in a really small part, they're like, you know, they got a chunk of Palestine. That's a long way from God's original plan of filling the whole earth, right, with people who worship him. Uh, the family's gotten bigger, 
But at the end of Genesis, when they all go off to Egypt, they're very countable. In fact, the Bible counts them. It tells you exactly how many of them there were, right, as they go back. The countless descendants are still a ways off. And Joseph turns out to kind of be an outlier. That kind of character is not the norm or even common among God's people, right, as the story goes forward. So we're left, right, with realizing that God has more to do in order to bring these purposes uh, to fruition. And it points us forward to the fact that there's going to be, in the future, a different descendant of Abraham whose name is Jesus. And when Jesus, son of Abraham, comes, he is going to inaugurate a new kingdom that isn't just going to be confined to one part of Palestine. He is going to claim authority over every square inch of this earth. And one day when he comes back, it is all going to be under his reign. And he's also going to change the family line of Abraham. So it's no longer going to be about like biological descent from Abraham to be part of the family of God. But instead, anyone from any tribe, tongue, and nation who puts their faith in Jesus Christ becomes a child of Abraham. And now, the children of Abraham really are becoming countless. And, you know, the prosperity, the material prosperity that Abraham and his family had by their day was a lot. Um, But Jesus, when he came through his death on the cross, made it possible for everyone who believes in him to receive the Holy Spirit and to have his presence dwell within him, making anyone who has the Spirit of God in him richer and more prosperous than the wealthiest man you know. Because the person who has Jesus living inside of him has something more valuable and more precious that they get to keep for eternity. That is real prosperity. And that Holy Spirit that comes to dwell inside of us finally starts making it possible for us to begin living according to the ways of the Lord, right? God working in us can do what we are unable to do of ourselves. But even as Christians, right, who have the Holy Spirit, we still struggle and it is still slow going much of the time. But as we see God's just patient pursuit of his plan, we know that he is working and will not stop until in the new kingdom of God, this entire earth really is filled with people who are fully transformed into his likeness and his image, who are glorifying him and being the people that God created us to be. So my encouragement to you is when it seems like such slow going, remember how patient God is. It is taking a long time for his promises to be fulfilled. Like Abraham had to wait 400 years, right, for his family to inherit the promised land. We've been waiting 2,000 for Jesus to come back. But here's what uh, it says in 2 Peter 3.9. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's slow going in part because God is giving sinful people like you and me and sinful people who have not had a chance to believe in him yet the opportunity to repent and become part of the family. God's patience with others requires us to be patient with God. 
that it should be encouraging to be patient with the slow pace that sometimes things take, to look back on thousands of years of God patiently working to bring about his plan and knowing that he who gave his only son is not going to stop until that plan is fully accomplished. Would you pray with me? Father, we are just in awe that you are so patient uh, with a people you have chosen for yourself who for thousands of years have been falling short of your standards of perfection. Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust you, to know that you are at work in us even when we can't feel it sometimes, and to believe that you will not stop until each of your purposes for mankind and this planet are fully accomplished in Jesus Christ, our Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.